Good morning, everyone. Uh, as, as you said, my name is James, and uh, I'm a student here in Cape Town, and I'm also one of the, the leaders at Frequency, which is our youth ministry. And it really is a joy for me and a privilege to be able to open up God's Word. So why don't we jump right in? We're going into Mark 9, um, verses 30 to 37. Why don't we read together? They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. They said to him, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, they asked, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. I know we just prayed, but would you mind if I pray again? (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active. And Lord, we want to hear from you. We don't want to hear the musings of a man. We want to hear you, the true and living God, speak to us. We pray that you'd be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're joining us today, we're in the fourth week of our second year journeying through Mark's gospel together. Now, in chapters 1 to 8, Mark posed the question, of who is Jesus? Who is this man who teaches with authority, who heals the sick, who casts out demons, who breaks the Sabbath, who touches lepers, and who loves the lowliest in society? This culminates in Mark 9, uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to 30, where where to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Peter responds, you are the Christ. Who is Jesus? He's the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one of God. And from this high point, the remainder of the gospel unpacks a second question. Not who is Jesus, but what has Jesus, the Messiah, come to do? It marks this development through a journey southward, as Jesus moves from the northern parts of Galilee, where he ministered, to Jerusalem, where he will ultimately be betrayed, killed, and in three days rise again. Our passage this morning takes place along this journey as Jesus and his disciples walk along a road and reside in a home in Capernaum. And I've structured our passage this morning with credit to Alistair Begg around two questions. Firstly, a question the disciples were too ashamed to ask in verses 30 to 32. And secondly, a question the disciples were too ashamed to answer in verses 33 to 37. Turn once again with me into your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, verse 30 to 32. So verse 30 begins with Jesus traveling on the road with his disciples. However, this time we see that Jesus is concerned with his privacy. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. This is the same Jesus who once moved freely amongst the crowds, who welcomed any and all interruptions, and who was accessible to all men and women. However, as he begins his descent to Jerusalem, where he will ultimately suffer, die, and then be raised. His movements and interactions become much more private, 
The focus is narrow. It's on Jesus and the disciples and the significance of his teachings that he must give before he goes. We may ask, why though? Well, Jesus' desire for privacy is in light of his priority. And what was his priority? We see it in verse 31. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. Jesus was teaching. In fact, the class that had begun in chapter 8, verse 31, was an ongoing class. And the classroom was the ongoing journey toward Jerusalem. Now, while the context of this class is marked by privacy, the content of this class is marked by clarity. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. Jesus doesn't teach anything new here. He doesn't arrive to class with a huge handful of new notes. In fact, it was one of those wonderful days when the teacher arrives to class and says, no more new work today. We'll be doing some revision, going over what we did last time. And Jesus does just that. He doesn't introduce anything new. He simply reiterates what he had taught them in chapter 8, verse 31 to 9, verse 1. Namely, that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, he's going to be killed, and then he'll be resurrected. Now, in terms of the structure of the sentence and the words that Jesus uses, there's nothing particularly difficult about it. People have had a good idea what it means to be betrayed, and I'm pretty sure it's not too difficult to understand what being killed is. Maybe a little trickier to wrap your head around the notion of rising again after three days. But essentially, Jesus' words mean exactly what they say. But in verse 32, we read, But they, the disciples, did not understand what he meant, and were afraid to ask him about it. The problem was not in the conveying of the message. Rather, the problem lay with the recipients of the message. The disciples just didn't get it. It wasn't that they couldn't understand what it meant to be betrayed, killed, or resurrected. They simply couldn't believe how that could be possible. Any notion they had of the Messiah had nothing to do with suffering. It certainly had nothing to do with death. And Jews only believed in a resurrection at the end of the present age, not one that would take place after three days. All of this would have been ridiculous to their ears. It would be as if a soccer team, who was leading by three goals at halftime, came out back onto the pitch and played the rest of their game with their legs tied together. It just wouldn't make sense. It just didn't make sense. If you're going to be a soccer player, then be a soccer player, but don't do that. If you're going to be the Messiah, then be the Messiah, but don't go ahead and get yourself betrayed and killed. And who knows about all this rising again stuff? We want a real Messiah. We don't want a betrayed, dead Messiah. You see, they had no categories for a suffering Jesus. They had no categories for a resurrected Jesus. So they didn't understand what he meant. So the question that they could have asked was perhaps, what on earth did Jesus mean? But they didn't. We read in verse 32 that they were afraid to ask. Their incomprehension to understand is matched by their fear to ask. But this comes across as strange, because throughout the Gospels, we see time and time again, the disciples are full of questions. What do the parables mean? What does this mean? What does that mean? They freely ask Jesus' question, and Jesus, as any good teacher, happily answers them. But on this occasion, 
No one was prepared to speak. They were afraid. Why? Perhaps they were afraid because of what had happened the last time someone tried to pull Jesus aside after his teaching. Do you remember the story? Peter takes Jesus aside and tries to rebuke him, only to be met with Jesus' famous response, Get behind me, Satan. After that, it makes complete sense that the disciples would say, Oh no, not this time. I won't ask anything. I won't say anything. Or perhaps, as one commentator has put it, they were silent because they understood enough to be afraid of understanding more. They were silent because they understood enough to be afraid of understanding more. Perhaps they had just enough of an understanding to recognize that if they actually asked questions, the answers they would receive would be answers they didn't really want to hear. Answers that involved suffering, self-denial, and sacrifices Answers that they didn't want. Hence, the question the disciples were too ashamed to ask. And we need to ask ourselves if we do the same. How good are we at listening when God is trying to say something to us? Is there something in Scripture or something that we've heard in church or something that we sense going on around us through which God is speaking to us? And if so, are we open to it? Are we prepared to have our earlier ways of understanding things taken apart so that a new way of understanding can be opened up instead? So is the question, so the the question is, what's the question that you're too ashamed to ask? Secondly, a question the disciples were too ashamed to answer, verses 33 to 37. So Jesus and his disciples' journey has led them to Capernaum. And here in the privacy of their own home, Jesus' class continues. Although the disciples had had no question for the teacher at the end of the previous class, the teacher now has a question for them. A question in light of their conversation that took place on the journey to get to the home. We see this question at the end of verse 33. What were you arguing about on the road? Jesus' question has to do with an argument that the disciples had amongst themselves along the way, and it doesn't seem that Jesus is looking for information here. Rather, it seems that Jesus is challenging them to bring into the open an argument which they had good reason to be ashamed of. Yet once again, Jesus is met with silence. Why did they keep quiet? Verse 34 tells us, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. And can we pause a minute just to take note of the irony? It's striking. Just a few verses earlier, we see Jesus focused on his suffering, on his imminent betrayal and death. But what are the disciples focused on? Status. Jesus has his eyes fixed on rejection and martyrdom, but his disciples have their eyes fixed on position and power. One commentator puts it, Jesus walks ahead in silence on his way to sacrificial death while his struggling disciples push and shove, trying to establish the order of the procession behind him. They had argued about who was the greatest. But what would have triggered an argument of this kind amongst the disciples? Perhaps it could have been the transfiguration. Just early in verses 2 to 13, we read that Jesus singled out Peter, James, and John to go up the mountain with him. Three disciples are taken. Nine are left behind. How would have the other nine felt? I think we can all relate to this feeling. 
For example, in the classroom, why is Tomani, Cassidy, and Candace chosen to read in assembly and not me? Or in the workplace, why is Luke, Luthor, or Lindsay chosen to go up to a conference in Johannesburg and not me? What's wrong with me? Perhaps the nine were jealous, or the three were boastful, or perhaps there was a little bit of both along the way to Capernaum. Alternatively, maybe the disciples were processing Jesus' message. Maybe they understood that Jesus was leaving soon, and this meant an end to leadership. And this meant that there was a space to be filled. Somebody would have to become the leader, and naturally they would all start jostling and jockeying to take that position. So when Jesus asked the question, what were you arguing about on the road? These grown men become like a group of guilty schoolboys caught with their hands in the cookie jar. They realize that they've missed the point, and they're too ashamed to even reply. And so they should be, and so we should be. Therefore, in verse 35, we see that Jesus calls the class in for an important teaching moment. Sitting down, he calls them together and says to them, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And this must have hit the disciples like a ton of bricks. Jesus asked, what were you arguing about on the road? Oh, no, nothing, Jesus. We weren't arguing about anything. Only for Jesus to say, if you want to be the first, you need to be the very last and you need to be a servant. We see Jesus do two incredibly profound things in response to the disciples' argument on greatness in verse 35. Firstly, Jesus doesn't destroy the pursuit of greatness. Jesus recognizes in his disciples' quest for greatness a good thing that has become ugly and distorted. And instead of destroying the whole distorted thing, he describes a pathway on which the distorted and ugly pursuit of greatness will be radically transformed into something beautiful. Nowhere does Jesus criticize a person for pursuing true greatness or true significance. And I think it's because he's created us to be great and to be significant, to come to the end of our lives and feel like they were well spent and well invested. But what has happened to this God-given longing for greatness is that it's been corrupted by sin in two ways. Firstly, it's been corrupted into a longing not to be great, but to be known as great. It's been corrupted into a longing not to be great, but to be known as great. And secondly, it's been corrupted into a longing not to be great, but to be greater than someone else. In other words, the joy of true greatness has been perverted by sin into the carnal pleasure we sinners get when others praise us and when we think that we are greater than others. Jesus sees this in his disciples. And instead of destroying this whole distorted thing, he describes a pathway on which it'll be radically transformed into something beautiful. So Jesus doesn't destroy the disciples' pursuit of greatness. Jesus radically transforms their pursuit of greatness. Jesus says that true greatness is not wanting to be first while others are second and third and fourth, but true greatness is a willingness to be last True greatness is not positioning yourself so that others praise you, but true greatness is putting yourself in a position to serve everyone, to be a blessing to as many people as you possibly can. So Jesus doesn't condemn the quest for greatness. He radically transforms it. He said, go ahead, pursue it. But the path is down, not up. Now, as a masterful teacher, then Jesus then gives an illustration to drive home his point. 
And we see this in verses 36 to 37. Jesus takes a child and puts them in their midst. Taking the child into his arms, he said, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Why a child? A child has no power, no status, and very few rights. A child was insignificant, unimportant, and the lowest on the Greco-Roman honor scale on social order. A child was dependent, vulnerable, entirely subject to the authority of their parents. And yet Jesus chooses a child to represent those who are needy and lowly, those with little to no social status, those with no power, no prestige, no influence, those who are insignificant, unimportant, and little in society's eyes. And what does Jesus say? He says, if you want to be great, you need to shower attention, care, and love on those who are regarded as insignificant, unimportant, and little, just as Jesus has done himself. If you want to be first, you must be last, and you must serve the last in your society, because theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus requires his great disciples to show humble service for the humble, the needy, and the lowly. And Jesus says to his disciples, as he says to you and me, that if you, that if you start to understand and you begin to grasp the kingdom of God, you will know that you've grasped it when you learn to welcome and serve these little ones. Because when you learn to welcome these little ones, it will be indicative of the fact that you have welcomed me. And in welcoming me, you're welcoming the Father who sent me. The greatest thing Jesus' followers can do is to serve those who are forgotten and regarded as insignificant. Those who have no influence, no titles, no priority, and no importance except to God. This is greatness in God's kingdom. But what does greatness look like in your kingdom? I think one way or another, we all aspire for greatness. And when you picture greatness in your life, what does it look like? What do you want? What do you aspire to have or to be? What do you long for? Perhaps it's recognition. The fame or the notoriety for what you've done. Perhaps it's status, the position or the prominence in the eyes of your peers, or to be the one who made the difference, who invented this or who cured that. Perhaps it's achievement or wealth or security. What, do, what greatness do you long for? What does greatness look like for a teenager or a student? Is it that ideal relationship? Or is it to be in a relationship? Is it a solid group of friends? Is it popularity or a place to belong? Perhaps it's a high grade or a mark on the work that you've done, or a slim-toned body or an influential social media platform. What does greatness look like for working adults? To have a great job that pays well and brings you fulfillment to be a great parent, to have a healthy marriage, or to be financially secure? What does greatness look like to be a pensioner? To 
have a great retirement with just enough money to live comfortably in your old age. Or perhaps it's to retain your importance and significance in your work or your friendships or your family. Or perhaps it's just being able to get out of bed in the morning. The issue is that when we see greatness as the pursuit of these things, and we set our expectations so high, when we don't achieve them, when our realities don't meet our expectations, we fall into disappointment, despair, and disaster. Another question we should ask is, how are your ideals for what greatness look like in your life similar and in line or different to those of God's kingdom? Are you truly longing for godly greatness or are you longing to be known as great? Are you truly longing for godly greatness or are you longing to be greater than someone else? How does Jesus' radical reorientation of greatness need to shift your pursuit of greatness as a teen, as a young adult, as a parent or a pensioner? Perhaps it looks like serving the guy or girl in your class who's struggling. Sacrificing your time with the possibility that your assignment, uh, with the possibility that you won't get as high a mark for your assignment or your test, but perhaps you'll be able to help them pass when they might have failed. Perhaps it's being honest about where you are at as a parent, not trying to act like it's all perfect, not trying to compare yourself with others or with the unrealistic expectations of social media, rather resting in God's goodness and having grace for yourself. And in what you can do and what you do do, put God first in serving other parents in your community who are probably feeling the same. Or perhaps it's recognizing your responsibility as an older person to love, serve, and teach the younger generation teaching them what wisdom looks like, modeling holiness and faithfulness, showing young people what radical, sacrificial, and servant living looks like, and using your resources for the glory of God and not your own comfort. Common Ground South Penn, may we be a people who follow after our Savior, the one who came not to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for the lowliest, and littlest of sinners. The one who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That cross which brought us freedom and life. What would South Penn look like as a community if each one of us sought out, loved, and served the lowliest people in our communities, in our valley? For one thing, we would look like the people of Jesus. Jesus is asking us a question today. Are you willing to hear it? The question is, are you willing to be great? Are you willing to pursue godly greatness in Jesus' kingdom? Are you willing to be the very last in your work, in your relationships, and in our valley? Are you willing to be a servant of all? It's a question that Jesus is not ashamed to ask of us. 
Will it be a question that we are not ashamed to answer? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. Jesus, we thank you for your life and this teaching. Lord, as we move from this place, would you stir it in our hearts to be servants, to be lost, and to love and care for the lowliest in our society. God, would you do a work in our hearts that South Penn would be a community of love and welcoming to the glory of your name. We thought it would be cool to end off this meeting with a song and a response. It's a new song that you might not know, but I think it could be very helpful to, in light of God's words, sit, reflect on the words, and pray. Pray for repentance Pray that God would reorientate your heart to love and care for the lowliest in our society. And just reflect.